Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 1 of Barchester Towers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nick Whitley, Purley. United Kingdom. Chapter 1. Who Will Be the New Bishop? In the latter days of July, in the year 1850-something, a most important question was, for ten days, hourly asked in the cathedral city of Barchester, and answered every hour in various ways. Who was to be the new bishop? The death of old Dr. Grantly, who had for many years filled that chair with meek authority, took place exactly as the ministry of Lord so-and-so was going to give place to that of Lord the other. The illness of the good old man was long and lingering, and it became at last a matter of intense interest to those concerned whether the new appointment should be made by a conservative or liberal government. It was pretty well understood that the outgoing premier had made his selection, and that if the question rested with him, the mitre would descend on the head of Archdeacon Grantly, the old bishop's son. The archdeacon had long managed the affairs of the diocese, and for some months previous to the demise of his father, rumour had confidently assigned to him the reversion of his father's honours bishop grantly died as he had lived peaceably slowly without pain and without excitement the breath ebbed from him almost imperceptibly and for a month before his death it was a question whether he were alive or dead a trying time was this for the archdeacon for whom was designed the reversion of his father's see by those who then had the giving away of episcopal thrones i would not be understood to say that the prime minister had in so many words promised the bishopric to dr grantly he was too discreet a man for that there is a proverb with reference to the killing of cats and those who know anything either of high or low government places will be well aware that a promise may be made without positive words and that an expectant may be put into the highest state of encouragement though the great man on whose breath he hangs may have done no more than whisper that mr so-and-so is certainly a rising man such a whisper had been made and was known by those who heard it to signify that the cures of the diocese of barchester should not be taken out of the hands of the archdeacon the then prime minister was all in all at oxford and had lately passed a night at the house of the master of lazarus now the master of lazarus which is by the by in many respects the most comfortable as well as the richest college at oxford was the archdeacon's most intimate friend 
and most trusted counsellor on the occasion of the prime minister's visit dr grantly was of course present and the meeting was very gracious on the following morning dr gwynne the master told the archdeacon that in his opinion the thing was settled at this time the bishop was quite on his last legs but the ministry also were tottering dr grantly returned from oxford happy and elated to resume his place in the palace and to continue to perform for the father the last duties of a son which to give him his due he performed with more tender care than was to be expected from his usual somewhat worldly manners a month since the physicians had named four weeks as the outside period during which breath could be supported within the body of the dying man at the end of the month the physicians wondered and named another fortnight the old man lived on wine alone but at the end of the fortnight he still lived and the tidings of the fall of the ministry became more frequent sir lambda mu nu and sir omicron pi the two great london doctors now came down for the fifth time and declared shaking their learned heads that another week of life was impossible and as they sat down to lunch in the episcopal dining-room whispered to the archdeacon their own private knowledge that the ministry must fall within five days the son returned to his father's room and after administering with his own hands the sustaining modicum of madeira sat down by the bedside to calculate his chances the ministry were to be out within five days his father was to be dead within no he rejected that view of the subject the ministry were to be out and the diocese might probably be vacant at the same period there was much doubt as to the names of the men who were to succeed to power and a week must elapse before a cabinet was formed would not vacancies be filled by the outgoing men during this week dr grantly had a kind of idea that such would be the case but did not know and then he wondered at his own ignorance on such a question he tried to keep his mind away from the subject but he could not the race was so very close and the stakes were so very high he then looked at the dying man's impassive placid face there was no sign there of death or disease it was something thinner than of yore somewhat greyer and the deep lines of age more marked but as far as he could judge life might yet hang there for weeks to come sir lambda Munu and sir omicron pi had thrice been wrong and might yet be wrong thrice again the old bishop slept during twenty of the twenty-four hours but during the short periods of his waking moments he knew both his son and his dear old friend mr harding the archdeacon's father-in-law and would thank them tenderly for their care and love now he lay sleeping like a baby 
resting easily on his back his mouth just open and his few grey hairs straggling from beneath his cap his breath was perfectly noiseless and his thin wan hand which lay above the coverlid never moved nothing could be easier than the old man's passage from this world to the next but by no means easy were the emotions of him who sat there watching he knew it must be now or never he was already over fifty and there was little chance that his friends who were now leaving office would soon return to it no probable british prime minister but he who was now in he who was so soon to be out would think of making a bishop of dr grantly thus he thought long and sadly in deep silence and then gazed at that still living face and then at last dared to ask himself whether he really longed for his father's death the effort was a salutary one and the question was answered in a moment the proud wishful worldly man sank on his knees by the bedside and taking the bishop's hand within his own prayed eagerly that his sins might be forgiven him his face was still buried in the clothes when the door of the bedroom opened noiselessly and mr harding entered with a velvet step mr harding's attendance at that bedside had been nearly as constant as that of the archdeacon and his ingress and egress was as much a matter of course as that of his son-in-law he was standing close beside the archdeacon before he was perceived and would also have knelt in prayer had he not feared that his doing so might have caused some sudden start and have disturbed the dying man dr grantly however instantly perceived him and rose from his knees as he did so mr harding took both his hands and pressed them warmly there was more fellowship between them at that moment than there had ever been before and it so happened that after circumstances greatly preserved the feeling as they stood there pressing each other's hands the tears rolled freely down their cheeks god bless you my dears said the bishop with feeble voice as he woke god bless you may god bless you both my dear children and so he died there was no loud rattle in the throat no dreadful struggle no palpable sign of death but the lower jaw fell a little from its place and the eyes which had been so constantly closed in sleep now remained fixed and open neither mr harding nor dr grantly knew that life was gone though both suspected it i believe it's all over said mr harding still pressing the other's hands i think nay i hope it is i will ring the bell said the other speaking all but in a whisper mrs phillips should be here mrs phillips the nurse was soon in the room and immediately with practised hand closed those staring eyes it's all over mrs phillips 
asked mr harding my lord's no more said mrs phillips turning round and curtsying low with solemn face his lordship's gone more like a sleeping babby than any that i ever saw it's a great relief archdeacon said mr harding a great relief dear good excellent old man oh that our last moments may be as innocent and as peaceful as his surely said mrs phillips the lord be praised for all his mercies but for a meek mild gentle-spoken christian his lordship was and mrs phillips with unaffected but easy grief put up her white apron to her flowing eyes you cannot but rejoice that it is over said mr harding still consoling his friend the archdeacon's mind however had already travelled from the death-chamber to the closet of the prime minister he had brought himself to pray for his father's life but now that life was done minutes were too precious to be lost it was now useless to dally with the fact of the bishop's death useless to lose perhaps everything for the pretence of a foolish sentiment but how was he to act while his father-in-law stood there holding his hand how without appearing unfeeling was he to forget his father and the bishop to overlook what he had lost and think only of what he might possibly gain no i suppose not said he at last in answer to mr harding we have all expected it so long mr harding took him by the arm and led him from the room we will see him again to-morrow morning said he we had better leave the room now to the women and so they went downstairs it was already evening and nearly dark it was most important that the prime minister should know that night that the diocese was vacant everything might depend on it and so in answer to mr harding's further consolation the archdeacon suggested that a telegraph message should be immediately sent off to london mr harding who had really been somewhat surprised to find dr grantly as he thought so much affected was rather taken aback but he made no objection he knew that the archdeacon had some hope of succeeding to his father's place though he by no means knew how highly raised that hope had been yes said dr grantly collecting himself and shaking off his weakness we must send a message at once we don't know what might be the consequence of delay will you do it i oh yes certainly i'll do anything only i don't know exactly what it is you want dr grantly sat down before a writing-table and taking pen and ink wrote on a slip of paper as follows by electric telegraph for the um earl of so-and-so downing street or elsewhere the bishop of barchester is dead message sent by the rev septimus harding there said he just take that to the telegraph office at the railway station and give it in as it is they'll probably make you copy it on to one of their own slips 
that's all you'll have to do then you'll have to pay them half a crown and the archdeacon put his hand in his pocket and pulled out the necessary sum mr harding felt very much like an errand boy and also felt that he was called on to perform his duties as such at rather an unseemly time but he said nothing and took the slip of paper and the proffered coin but you've put my name into it archdeacon yes said the other there should be the name of some clergyman you know and what name so proper as that of so old a friend as yourself the earl won't look at the name you may be sure of that but my dear mr harding pray don't lose any time mr harding got as far as the library door on his way to the station when he suddenly remembered the news with which he was fraught when he entered the poor bishop's bedroom he had found the moment so inopportune for any mundane tidings that he had repressed the words which were on his tongue and immediately afterwards all recollection of the circumstance was for the time banished by the scene which had occurred but archdeacon said he turning back i forgot to tell you the ministry are out out ejaculated the archdeacon in a tone which too plainly showed his anxiety and dismay although under the circumstances of the moment he endeavoured to control himself out who told you so mr harding explained that news to this effect had come down by electric telegraph and that the tidings had been left at the palace door by mr chadwick the archdeacon sat silent for a while meditating and mr harding stood looking at him never mind said the archdeacon at last send the message all the same the news must be sent to some one and there is at present no one else in a position to receive it do it at once my dear friend you know i would not trouble you were i in a state to do it myself a few minutes time is of the greatest importance mr harding went out and sent the message and it may be as well that we should follow it to its destination within thirty minutes of its leaving barchester it reached the earl of so-and-so in his inner library what elaborate letters what eloquent appeals what indignant remonstrances he might there have to frame at such a moment may be conceived but not described how he was preparing his thunder for successful rivals standing like a british peer with his back to the sea-coal fire and his hands in his breeches pockets how his fine eye was lit up with anger and his forehead gleamed with patriotism how he stamped his foot as he thought of his heavy associates how he all but swore as he remembered how much too clever one of them had been my creative readers may imagine but was he so engaged no history and truth compel me to deny it he was sitting easily in a lounging-chair conning over a new market list and by his elbow on the table was lying open an uncut french novel on which he was engaged he opened the cover in which the message was enclosed and having read it 
he took his pen and wrote on the back of it for the earl of other with the earl of so-and-so's compliments and sent it off again on its journey thus terminated our unfortunate friend's chances of possessing the glories of a bishopric the names of many divines were given in the papers as that of the bishop-elect the british grandmother declared that dr gwynne was to be the man in compliment to the late ministry this was a heavy blow to dr grantly but he was not doomed to see himself superseded by his friend the anglican devotee put forward confidently the claims of a great london preacher of austere doctrines and the eastern hemisphere an evening paper supposed to possess much official knowledge declared in favour of an eminent naturalist a gentleman most completely versed in the knowledge of rocks and minerals but supposed by many to hold on religious subjects no special doctrines whatever the jupiter that daily paper which as we all know is the only true source of infallibly correct information on all subjects for a while was silent but at last spoke out the merits of all these candidates were discussed and somewhat irreverently disposed of and then the jupiter declared that dr proudie was to be the man dr proudie was the man just a month after the demise of the late bishop dr proudie kissed the queen's hand as his successor-elect we must beg to be allowed to draw a curtain over the sorrows of the archdeacon as he sat sombre and sad at heart in the study of his parsonage at plumstead episcopi on the day subsequent to the dispatch of the message he heard that the earl of other had consented to undertake the formation of a ministry and from that moment he knew that his chance was over many will think that he was wicked to grieve for the loss of episcopal power wicked to have coveted it nay wicked even to have thought about it in the way and at the moments he had done so with such censures i cannot profess that i completely agree the nolo episcopari though still in use is so directly at variance with the tendency of all human wishes that it cannot be thought to express the true aspirations of rising priests in the church of england a lawyer does not sin in seeking to be a judge or in compassing his wishes by all honest means a young diplomat entertains a fair ambition when he looks forward to be the lord of a first-rate embassy and a poor novelist when he attempts to rival dickens or rise above fitzjames commits no fault though he may be foolish sidney smith truly said that in these recreant days we cannot expect to find the majesty of st paul beneath the cassock of a curate if we look to our clergymen to be more than men we shall probably teach ourselves to think that they are less and can hardly hope to raise the character of the pastor by denying to him the right to entertain the aspirations of a man our archdeacon was worldly who among us is not so he was ambitious who among us is ashamed to own that last infirmity of noble minds he was avaricious my readers will say 
no it was for no love of lucre that he wished to be bishop of barchester he was his father's only child and his father had left him great wealth his preferment brought him in nearly three thousand a year the bishopric as cut down by the ecclesiastical commission was only five he would be a richer man as archdeacon than he could be as bishop but he certainly did desire to play first fiddle he did desire to sit in full lawn sleeves among the peers of the realm and he did desire if the truth must out to be called my lord by his reverend brethren his hopes however were they innocent or sinful were not fated to be realized and dr proudie was consecrated bishop of barchester end of chapter one recording by nick whitley purley united kingdom chapter two of barchester towers by anthony trollope this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by nick whitley purley united kingdom chapter two hiram's hospital according to act of parliament it is hardly necessary that i should here give to the public any lengthened biography of mr harding up to the period of the commencement of this tale the public cannot have forgotten how ill that sensitive gentleman bore the attack that was made on him in the columns of the jupiter with reference to the income which he received as warden of hiram's hospital in the city of barchester nor can it yet be forgotten that a lawsuit was instituted against him on the matter of that charity by mr john bold who afterwards married his mr harding's younger and then only unmarried daughter under pressure of these attacks mr harding had resigned his wardenship though strongly recommended to abstain from doing so both by his friends and by his lawyers he did however resign it and betook himself manfully to the duties of the small parish of st cuthbert's in the city of which he was vicar continuing also to perform those of precentor of the cathedral a situation of small emolument which had hitherto been supposed to be joined as a matter of course to the wardenship of the hospital above spoken of when he left the hospital from which he had been so ruthlessly driven and settled himself down in his own modest manner in the high street of barchester he had not expected that others would make more fuss about it than he was inclined to do himself extent of his hope was that the movement might have been made in time to prevent any further paragraphs in the jupiter his affairs however were not allowed to subside thus quietly and people were quite as much inclined to talk about the disinterested sacrifice he had made as they had before been to abrade him for his cupidity the most remarkable thing that occurred was the receipt of an autographed letter from the archbishop of canterbury in which the primate very warmly praised his conduct and begged to know what his intentions were for the future mr harding replied that he intended to be rector of st cuthbert's in barchester and so that matter dropped then the newspapers took up his case the jupiter among the rest 
and wafted his name in eulogistic strains through every reading-room in the nation it was discovered also that he was the author of that great musical work harding's church music and a new edition was spoken of though i believe never printed it is however certain that the work was introduced into the royal chapel at st james's and that a long criticism appeared in the musical scrutator declaring that in no previous work of the kind had so much research been joined with such exalted musical ability and asserting that the name of harding would henceforward be known wherever the arts were cultivated or religion valued this was high praise and i will not deny that mr harding was gratified by such flattery for if mr harding was vain on any subject it was on that of music but here the matter rested the second edition if printed was never purchased the copies which had been introduced into the royal chapel disappeared again and were laid by in peace with a load of similar literature mr towers of the jupiter and his brethren occupied themselves with other names and the undying fame promised to our friend was clearly intended to be posthumous mr harding had spent much of his time with his friend the bishop much with his daughter mrs bold now alas a widow and had almost daily visited the wretched remnant of his former subjects the few surviving bedesmen now left at hiram's hospital six of them were still living the number according to old hiram's will should always have been twelve but after the abdication of their warden the bishop had appointed no successor to him no new occupants of the charity had been nominated and it appeared as though the hospital at barchester would fall into abeyance unless the powers that be should take some steps towards putting it once more into working order during the past five years the powers that be had not overlooked barchester hospital and sundry political doctors had taken the matter in hand shortly after mr harding's resignation the jupiter had very clearly shown what ought to be done in about half a column it had distributed the income rebuilt the buildings put an end to all bickerings regenerated kindly feeling provided for mr harding and placed the whole thing on a footing which could not but be satisfactory to the city and bishop of barchester and to the nation at large the wisdom of this scheme was testified by the number of letters which common sense veritas and one that loves fair play sent to the jupiter all expressing admiration and amplifying on the details given it is singular enough that no adverse letter appeared at all and therefore none of course was written but cassandra was not believed and even the wisdom of the jupiter sometimes falls on deaf ears though other plans did not put themselves forward in the columns of the jupiter reformers of church charities were not slack to make known in various places their different nostrums for setting hiram's hospital on its feet again a learned bishop took occasion in the upper house to allude to the matter 
intimating that he had communicated on the subject with his right reverend brother of barchester the radical member for staleybridge had suggested that the funds should be alienated for the education of the agricultural poor of the country and he amused the house by some anecdotes touching the superstition and habits of the agriculturists in question a political pamphleteer had produced a few dozen pages which he called who are john hiram's heirs intended to give an infallible rule for the governance of all such establishments at last a member of the government promised that in the next session a short bill should be introduced for regulating the affairs of barchester and other kindred concerns the next session came and contrary to custom the bill came also men's minds were then intent on other things the first threatenings of a huge war hung heavily over the nation and the question as to hiram's heirs did not appear to interest very many people either in or out of the house the bill however was read and re-read and in some undistinguished manner passed through its eleven stages without appeal or dissent what would john hiram have said in the matter could he have predicted that some forty-five gentlemen would take on themselves to make a law altering the whole purport of his will without in the least knowing at the moment of their making it what it was that they were doing it is however to be hoped that the under-secretary for the home office knew for to him had the matter been confided the bill however did pass and at the time at which this history is supposed to commence it had been ordained that there should be as heretofore twelve old men in barchester hospital each with one and fourpence a day that there should also be twelve old women to be located in a house to be built each with one and twopence a day that there should be a matron with a house and seventy pounds a year a steward with a hundred and fifty pounds a year and latterly a warden with four hundred and fifty pounds a year who should have the spiritual guidance of both establishments and the temporal guidance of that appertaining to the male sex the bishop dean and warden were as formerly to appoint in turn the recipients of the charity and the bishop was to appoint the officers there was nothing said as to the wardenship being held by the precentor of the cathedral nor a word as to mr harding's right to the situation it was not however till some months after the death of the old bishop and almost immediately consequent on the installation of his successor that notice was given that the reform was about to be carried out the new law and the new bishop were among the earliest works of a new ministry or rather of a ministry who having for a while given place to their opponents had then returned to power and the death of dr grantly occurred as we have seen exactly at the period of the change poor eleanor bold how well does that widow's cap become her and the solemn gravity with which she devotes herself to her new duties poor eleanor poor eleanor 
i cannot say that with me john bold was ever a favourite i never thought him worthy of the wife he had won but in her estimation he was most worthy hers was one of those feminine hearts which cling to a husband not with idolatry for worship can admit of no defect in its idol but with the perfect tenacity of ivy as the parasite plant will follow even the defects of the trunk which it embraces so did eleanor cling to and love the very faults of her husband she had once declared that whatever her father did should in her eyes be right she then transferred her allegiance and became ever ready to defend the worst failings of her lord and master and john bold was a man to be loved by a woman he was himself affectionate he was confiding and manly and that arrogance of thought unsustained by first-rate abilities that attempt at being better than his neighbours which jarred so painfully on the feelings of his acquaintance did not injure him in the estimation of his wife could she even have admitted that he had a fault his early death would have blotted out the memory of it she wept as for the loss of the most perfect treasure with which mortal woman had ever been endowed for weeks after he was gone the idea of future happiness in this world was hateful to her consolation as it is called was insupportable and tears and sleep were her only relief but god tempers the wind to the shorn lamb she knew that she had within her the living source of other cares she knew that there was to be created for her another subject of weal or woe of unutterable joy or despairing sorrow as god in his mercy might vouchsafe to her at first this did but augment her grief to be the mother of a poor infant orphaned before it was born brought forth to the sorrows of an ever desolate hearth nurtured amidst tears and wailing and then turned adrift into the world without the aid of a father's care there was at first no joy in this by degrees however her heart became anxious for another object and before its birth the stranger was expected with all the eagerness of a longing mother just eight months after the father's death a second john bold was born and if the worship of one creature can be innocent in another let us hope that the adoration offered over the cradle of the fatherless infant may not be imputed as a sin it will not be worth our while to define the character of the child or to point out in how far the faults of the father were redeemed within that little breast by the virtues of the mother the baby as a baby was all that was delightful and i cannot foresee that it will be necessary for us to inquire into the facts of his after-life our present business at barchester will not occupy us above a year or two at the furthest and i will leave it to some other pen to produce if necessary the biography of john bold the younger but as a baby this baby was all that could be desired this fact no one attempted to deny is he not delightful 
she would say to her father looking up into his face from her knees her lustrous eyes overflowing with soft tears her young face encircled by her close widow's cap and her hands on each side of the cradle in which her treasure was sleeping the grandfather would gladly admit that the treasure was delightful and the uncle archdeacon himself would agree and mrs grantly eleanor's sister would re-echo the word with true sisterly energy and mary bold but mary bold was a second worshipper at the same shrine the baby was really delightful he took his food with a will struck out his toes merrily whenever his legs were uncovered and did not have fits these are supposed to be the strongest points of baby perfection and in all these our baby excelled and thus the widow's deep grief was softened and a sweet balm was poured into the wound which she had thought nothing but death could heal how much kinder is god to us than we are willing to be to ourselves at the loss of every dear face at the last going of every beloved one we all doom ourselves to an eternity of sorrow and look to waste ourselves away in an ever-running fountain of tears how seldom does such grief endure how blessed is the goodness which forbids it to do so let me ever remember my living friends but forget them as soon as dead was the prayer of a wise man who understood the mercy of god few perhaps would have the courage to express such a wish and yet to do so would only be to ask for that release from sorrow which a kind creator almost always extends to us i would not however have it imagined that mrs bold forgot her husband she daily thought of him with all conjugal love and enshrined his memory in the innermost centre of her heart but yet she was happy in her baby it was so sweet to press the living toy to her breast and feel that a human being existed who did owe and was to owe everything to her whose daily food was drawn from herself whose little wants could all be satisfied by her whose little heart would first love her and her only whose infant tongue would make its first effort in calling her by the sweetest name a woman can hear and so eleanor's bosom became tranquil and she set about her new duties eagerly and gratefully as regards the concerns of the world john bold had left his widow in prosperous circumstances he had bequeathed to her all that he possessed and that comprised an income much exceeding what she or her friends thought necessary for her it amounted to nearly a thousand a year when she reflected on its extent her dearest hope was to hand it over not only unimpaired but increased to her husband's son to her own darling to the little man who now lay sleeping on her knee happily ignorant of the cares which were to be accumulated in his behalf when john bold died she earnestly implored her father to come and live with her but this mr harding declined 
though for some weeks he remained with her as a visitor he could not be prevailed upon to forego the possession of some small home of his own and so remained in the lodgings he had first selected over a chemist's shop in the high street of barchester end of chapter two recording by nick whitley purley united kingdom chapter three of barchester towers by anthony trollope this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by nick whitley purley united kingdom chapter three doctor and mrs proudie this narrative is supposed to commence immediately after the installation of dr proudie i will not describe the ceremony as i do not precisely understand its nature i am ignorant whether a bishop be chaired like a member of parliament or carried in a gilt coach like a lord mayor or sworn like a justice of peace or introduced like a peer to the upper house or led between two brethren like a knight of the garter but i do know that everything was properly done that nothing fit or becoming to a young bishop was omitted on the occasion dr proudie was not the man to allow anything to be omitted that might be becoming to his new dignity he understood well the value of forms and knew that the due observance of rank could not be maintained unless the exterior trappings belonging to it were held in proper esteem he was a man born to move in high circles at least so he thought himself and circumstances had certainly sustained him in this view he was the nephew of an irish baron by his mother's side and his wife was the niece of a scotch earl he had for years held some clerical office appertaining to courtly matters which had enabled him to live in london and to entrust his parish to his curate he had been preacher to the royal beefeaters curator of theological manuscripts in the ecclesiastical courts chaplain to the queen's yeomanry guard and almoner to his royal highness the prince of rapperblankenberg his residence in the metropolis rendered necessary by duties thus entrusted to him his high connections and the peculiar talents and nature of the man recommended him to persons in power and dr proudie became known as a useful and rising clergyman some few years since even within the memory of many who were not yet willing to call themselves old a liberal clergyman was a person not frequently to be met sidney smith was such and was looked on as little better than an infidel a few others also might be named but they were rare aves and were regarded with doubt and distrust by their brethren no man was so surely a tory as a country rector nowhere were the powers that be so cherished as at oxford when however dr whateley was made an archbishop and dr hamden some years afterwards regius professor many wise divines saw that a change was taking place in men's minds and that more liberal ideas would henceforward be suitable to the priests as well as to the laity 
clergymen began to be heard of who had ceased to anathematize papists on the one hand or vilify dissenters on the other it appeared clear that high church principles as they are called were no longer to be surest claims to promotion with at any rate one section of statesmen and dr proudie was one among those who early in life adapted himself to the views held by the whigs on most theological and religious subjects he bore with the idolatry of rome tolerated even the infidelity of socinianism and was hand in glove with the presbyterian synods of scotland and ulster such a man at such a time was found to be useful and dr proudie's name began to appear in the newspapers he was made one of a commission who went over to ireland to arrange matters preparative to the working of the national board he became honorary secretary to another commission nominated to inquire into the revenues of cathedral chapters he had had something to do with both the regium donum and the maynooth grant it must not on this account be taken as proved that dr proudie was a man of great mental powers or even of much capacity for business for such qualities had not been required in him in the arrangement of those church reforms with which he was connected the ideas and original conception of the work to be done were generally furnished by the liberal statesmen of the day and the labour of the details was borne by officials of a lower rank it was however thought expedient that the name of some clergyman should appear in such matters and as dr proudie had become known as a tolerating divine great use of this sort was made of his name if he did not do much active good he never did any harm he was amenable to those who were really in authority and at the sittings of the various boards to which he belonged maintained a kind of dignity which had its value he was certainly possessed of sufficient tact to answer the purpose for which he was required without making himself troublesome but it must not therefore be surmised that he doubted his own power or failed to believe that he could himself take a high part in high affairs when his own turn came he was biding his time and patiently looking forward to the days when he himself would sit authoritative at some board and talk and direct and rule the roost while lesser stars sat round and obeyed as he had so well accustomed himself to do his reward and his time had now come he was selected for the vacant bishopric and on the next vacancy which might occur in any diocese would take his place in the house of lords prepared to give not a silent vote in all matters concerning the wheel of the church establishment toleration was to be the basis on which he was to fight his battles and in the honest courage of his heart he thought no evil would come to him in encountering even such foes as his brethren of exeter and oxford dr proudie was an ambitious man and before he was well consecrated bishop of barchester he had begun to look up to archiepiscopal splendour 
and the glories of lambeth or at any rate of bishopsthorpe he was comparatively young and had as he fondly flattered himself been selected as possessing such gifts natural and acquired as must be sure to recommend him to a yet higher notice now that a higher sphere was opened to him dr proudie was therefore quite prepared to take a conspicuous part in all theological affairs appertaining to these realms and having such views by no means intended to bury himself at barchester as his predecessor had done no london should still be his ground a comfortable mansion in a provincial city might be well enough for the dead months of the year indeed dr proudie had always felt it necessary to his position to retire from london when other great and fashionable people did so but london should still be his fixed residence and it was in london that he resolved to exercise that hospitality so peculiarly recommended to all bishops by st paul how otherwise could he keep himself before the world how else give to the government in matters theological the full benefit of his weight and talents this resolution was no doubt a salutary one as regarded the world at large but was not likely to make him popular either with the clergy or people of barchester dr grantly had always lived there in truth it was hard for a bishop to be popular after dr grantly his income had averaged nine thousand pounds a year his successor was to be rigidly limited to five thousand pounds he had but one child on whom to spend his money dr proudie had seven or eight he had been a man of few personal expenses and they had been confined to the tastes of a moderate gentleman but dr proudie had to maintain a position in fashionable society and had that to do with comparatively small means dr grantly had certainly kept his carriages became a bishop but his carriage horses and coachman though they did very well for barchester would have been almost ridiculous at westminster mrs proudie determined that her husband's equipage should not shame her and things on which mrs proudie resolved were generally accomplished from all this it was likely to result that dr proudie would not spend much money at barchester whereas his predecessor had dealt with the tradesmen of the city in a manner very much to their satisfaction the grantlys father and son had spent their money like gentlemen but it soon became whispered in barchester that dr proudie was not unacquainted with those prudent devices by which the utmost show of wealth is produced from limited means in person dr proudie is a good-looking man spruce and dapper and very tidy he is somewhat below middle height being about five feet four but he makes up for the inches which he wants by the dignity with which he carries those which he has it is no fault of his own if he has not a commanding eye for he studies hard to assume it his features are well formed 
though perhaps the sharpness of his nose may give to his face in the eyes of some people an air of insignificance if so it is greatly redeemed by his mouth and chin of which he is justly proud dr proudie may well be said to have been a fortunate man for he was not born to wealth and he is now bishop of barchester nevertheless he has his cares he has a large family of whom the three eldest are daughters now all grown up and fit for fashionable life and he has a wife it is not my intention to breathe a word against the character of mrs proudie but still i cannot think that with all her virtues she adds much to her husband's happiness the truth is that in matters domestic she rules supreme over her titular lord and rules with a rod of iron nor is this all things domestic dr proudie might have abandoned to her if not voluntarily yet willingly but mrs proudie is not satisfied with such home dominion and stretches her power over all his movements and will not even abstain from things spiritual in fact the bishop is henpecked the archdeacon's wife in her happy home at plumstead knows how to assume the full privileges of her rank and express her own mind in becoming tone and place but mrs grantly's sway if sway she has is easy and beneficent she never shames her husband before the world she is a pattern of obedience her voice is never loud nor her looks sharp doubtless she values power and has not unsuccessfully striven to acquire it but she knows what should be the limits of a woman's rule not so mrs proudie this lady is habitually authoritative to all but to her poor husband she is despotic successful as has been his career in the eyes of the world it would seem that in the eyes of his wife he is never right all hope of defending himself has long passed from him indeed he rarely even attempts self-justification and is aware that submission produces the nearest approach to peace which his own house can ever attain mrs proudie has not been able to sit at the boards and committees to which her husband has been called by the state nor as he often reflects can she make her voice heard in the house of lords it may be that she will refuse to him permission to attend to this branch of a bishop's duties it may be that she will insist on his close attendance to his own closet he has never whispered a word on the subject to living ears but he has already made his fixed resolve should such attempt be made he will rebel dogs have turned against their masters and even neapolitans against their rulers when oppression has been too severe and dr proudie feels within himself that if the cord be drawn too tight he also can muster courage and resist the state of vassalage in which our bishop has been kept by his wife 
has not tended to exalt his character in the eyes of his daughters who assume in addressing their father too much of that authority which is not properly belonging at any rate to them they are on the whole fine engaging young ladies they are tall and robust like their mother whose high cheekbones and we may say auburn hair they all inherit they think somewhat too much of their granduncles who have not hitherto returned the compliment by thinking much of them but now that their father is a bishop it is probable that family ties will be drawn closer considering their connection with the church they entertain but few prejudices against the pleasures of the world and have certainly not distressed their parents as too many english girls have lately done by any enthusiastic wish to devote themselves to the seclusion of a protestant nunnery dr proudie's sons are still at school one other marked peculiarity in the character of the bishop's wife must be mentioned though not averse to the society and manners of the world she is in her own way a religious woman and the form in which this tendency shows itself in her is by a strict observance of sabbatarian rule dissipation and low dresses during the week are under her control atoned for by three services an evening sermon read by herself and a perfect abstinence from any cheering employment on the sunday unfortunately for those under her roof to whom the dissipation and low dresses are not extended her servants namely and her husband the compensating strictness of the sabbath includes all woe betide the recreant housemaid who is found to have been listening to the honey of a sweetheart in the regent's park instead of the soul-stirring evening discourse of mr slope not only is she sent adrift but she is so sent with a character which leaves her little hope of a decent place woe betide the six-foot hero who escorts mrs proudie to her pew in red plush breeches if he slips away to the neighbouring beer-shop instead of falling into the back seat appropriated to his use mrs proudie has the eyes of argus for such offenders occasional drunkenness in the week may be overlooked for six feet on low wages are hardly to be procured if the morals are always kept at a high pitch but not even for grandeur or economy will mrs proudie forgive a desecration of the sabbath in such matters mrs proudie allows herself to be often guided by that eloquent preacher the rev mr slope and as dr proudie is guided by his wife it necessarily follows that the eminent man we have named has obtained a good deal of control over dr proudie in matters concerning religion mr slope's only preferment has hitherto been that of reader and preacher in a london district church and on the consecration of his friend the new bishop he readily gave this up to undertake the onerous but congenial duties of domestic chaplain to his lordship mr slope however on his first introduction must not be brought before the public at the tail of a chapter End of chapter 3
Recording by Nick Whitley, Purley, United Kingdom. Chapter Four of Barchester Towers by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nick Whitley, Purley, United Kingdom. Chapter Four: The Bishop's Chaplain. Of the Rev. Mr. Slope's parentage, I am not able to say much. I have heard it asserted that he is lineally descended from that eminent physician who assisted at the birth of Mr. T. Shandy, and that in early years he added an E to his name for the sake of euphony, as other great men have done before him. If this be so, I presume he was christened Obadiah, for that is his name, in commemoration of the conflict in which his ancestor so distinguished himself. All my researches on the subject have, however, failed in enabling me to fix the date on which the family changed its religion. He had been a sizer at Cambridge, and had there conducted himself at any rate successfully, for in due process of time he was an M.A., having university pupils under his care. From thence he was transferred to London, and became preacher at a new district church built on the confines of Baker Street. He was in this position when congenial ideas on religious subjects recommended him to Mrs. Proudie, and the intercourse had become close and confidential. Having been thus familiarly thrown among the Mrs. Proudie, it was no more than natural that some softer feeling than friendship should be engendered. There have been some passages of love between him and the eldest hope, Olivia, but they have hitherto resulted in no favourable arrangement. In truth, Mr. Slope, having made a declaration of affection, afterwards withdrew it, on finding that the doctor had no immediate worldly funds with which to endow his child, and it may easily be conceived that Miss Proudie, after such an announcement on his part, was not readily disposed to receive any further show of affection. On the appointment of Dr. Proudie to the bishopric of Barchester, Mr. Slope's views were in truth somewhat altered. Bishops, even though they be poor, can provide for clerical children, and Mr. Slope began to regret that he had not been more disinterested. He no sooner heard the tidings of the doctor's elevation than he recommenced his siege, not violently indeed, but respectfully and at a distance. Olivia Proudie, however, was a girl of spirit. She had the blood of two peers in her veins, and better still, she had another lover on her books. So Mr. Slope sighed in vain, and the pair soon found it convenient to establish a mutual bond of inveterate hatred. It may be thought singular that Mrs. Proudie's friendship for the young clergyman should remain firm after such an affair, but, to tell the truth, she had known nothing of it. Though very fond of Mr. Slope herself, she had never conceived the idea that either of her daughters would become so, and remembering their high birth and social advantages, expected for them matches of a different sort. Neither the gentleman 
nor the lady found it necessary to enlighten her olivia's two sisters had each known of the affair as had all the servants as had all the people living in the adjoining houses on either side but mrs proudie had been kept in the dark mr slope soon comforted himself with the reflection that as he had been selected as chaplain to the bishop it would probably be in his power to get the good things in the bishop's gift without troubling himself with the bishop's daughter and he found himself able to endure the pangs of rejected love as he sat himself down in the railway carriage confronting the bishop and mrs proudie as they started on their first journey to barchester he began to form in his own mind a plan of his future life he knew well his patron's strong points but he knew the weak ones as well he understood correctly enough to what attempts the new bishop's high spirit would soar and he rightly guessed that public life would better suit the great man's taste than the small details of diocesan duty he therefore he mr slope would in effect be bishop of barchester such was his resolve and to give mr slope his due he had both courage and spirit to bear him out in his resolution he knew that he should have a hard battle to fight for the power and patronage of the sea would be equally coveted by another great mind mrs proudie would also choose to be bishop of barchester mr slope however flattered himself that he could outmanoeuvre the lady she must live much in london while he would always be on the spot she would necessarily remain ignorant of much while he would know everything belonging to the diocese at first doubtless he must flatter and cajole perhaps yield in some things but he did not doubt of ultimate triumph if all other means failed he could join the bishop against his wife inspire courage into the unhappy man lay an axe to the root of the woman's power and emancipate the husband such were his thoughts as he sat looking at the sleeping pair in the railway carriage and mr slope is not the man to trouble himself with such thoughts for nothing he is possessed of more than average abilities and is of good courage though he can stoop to fawn and stoop low indeed if need be he has still within him the power to assume the tyrant and with the power he has certainly the wish his acquirements are not of the highest order but such as they are they are completely under control and he knows the use of them he is gifted with a certain kind of pulpit eloquence not likely indeed to be persuasive with men but powerful with the softer sex in his sermons he deals greatly in denunciations excites the minds of his weaker hearers with a not unpleasant terror and leaves an impression on their minds that all mankind are in a perilous state and all womankind too 
except those who attend regularly to the evening lectures in baker street his looks and tones are extremely severe so much so that one cannot but fancy that he regards the greater part of the world as being infinitely too bad for his care as he walks through the streets his very face denotes his horror of the world's wickedness and there is always an anathema lurking in the corner of his eye in doctrine he like his patron is tolerant of dissent if so strict a mind can be called tolerant of anything with wesleyan methodists he has something in common but his soul trembles in agony at the iniquities of the puseyites his aversion is carried to things outward as well as inward his gall rises at a new church with a high-pitched roof a full-breasted black silk waistcoat is with him a symbol of satan and a profane jest-book would not in his view more foully desecrate the church seat of a christian than a book of prayer printed with red letters and ornamented with a cross on the back most active clergymen have their hobby and sunday observances are his sunday however is a word which never pollutes his mouth it is always the sabbath the desecration of the sabbath as he delights to call it is to him meat and drink he thrives upon that as policemen do on the general evil habits of the community it is the loved subject of all his evening discourses the source of all his eloquence the secret of all his power over the female heart to him the revelation of god appears only in that one law given for jewish observance to him the mercies of our saviour speak in vain to him in vain has been preached that sermon which fell from divine lips on the mountain blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy to him the new testament is comparatively of little moment for from it can he draw no fresh authority for that dominion which he loves to exercise over at least a seventh part of man's allotted time here below mr slope is tall and not ill-made his feet and hands are large as has ever been the case with all his family but he has a broad chest and wide shoulders to carry off these excrescences and on the whole his figure is good his countenance however is not specially prepossessing his hair is lank and of a dull pale reddish hue it is always formed into three straight lumpy masses each brushed with admirable precision and cemented with much grease two of them adhere closely to the sides of his face and the other lies at right angles above them he wears no whiskers and is always punctiliously shaven his face is nearly of the same colour as his hair though perhaps a little redder it is not unlike beef beef however one would say of a bad quality his forehead is capacious and high but square and heavy 
and unpleasantly shining his mouth is large though his lips are thin and bloodless and his big prominent pale brown eyes inspire anything but confidence his nose however is his redeeming feature it is pronounced straight and well formed though i myself should have liked it better did it not possess a somewhat spongy porous appearance as though it had been cleverly formed out of a red-coloured cork i never could endure to shake hands with mr slope a cold clammy perspiration always exudes from him the small drops are ever to be seen standing on his brow and his friendly grasp is unpleasant such is mr slope such is the man who has suddenly fallen into the midst of barchester close and is destined there to assume the station which has heretofore been filled by the son of the late bishop think o oh my meditative reader what an associate we have here for those comfortable prebendaries those gentlemanlike clerical doctors those happy well-used well-fed minor canons who have grown into existence at barchester under the kindly wings of bishop grantly but not as a mere associate for these does mr slope travel down to barchester with the bishop and his wife he intends to be if not their master at least the chief among them he intends to lead and to have followers he intends to hold the purse-strings of the diocese and draw round him an obedient herd of his poor and hungry brethren and here we can hardly fail to draw a comparison between the archdeacon and our new private chaplain and despite the manifold faults of the former one can hardly fail to make it much to his advantage both men are eager much too eager to support and increase the power of their order both are anxious that the world should be priest-governed though they have probably never confessed so much even to themselves both begrudge any other kind of dominion held by man over man dr grantly if he admits the queen's supremacy in things spiritual only admits it as being due to the quasi-priesthood conveyed in the consecrating qualities of her coronation and he regards things temporal as being by their nature subject to those which are spiritual mr slope's ideas of sacerdotal rule are of quite a different class he cares nothing one way or the other for the queen's supremacy these to his ears are empty words meaning nothing forms he regards but little and such titular expressions as supremacy consecration ordination and the like convey of themselves no significance to him let him be supreme who can the temporal king judge or jailer can work but on the body the spiritual master if he have the necessary gifts and can duly use them has a wider field of empire he works upon the soul if he can make himself be believed he can be all-powerful over those who listen if he be careful to meddle with none who are too strong in intellect 
or too weak in flesh he may indeed be supreme and such was the ambition of mr slope dr grantly interfered very little with the worldly doings of those who were in any way subject to him i do not mean to say that he omitted to notice misconduct among his clergy immorality in his parish or omissions in his family but he was not anxious to do so where the necessity could be avoided he was not troubled with a propensity to be curious and as long as those around him were tainted with no heretical leaning towards dissent as long as they fully and freely admitted the efficacy of mother church he was willing that that mother should be merciful and affectionate prone to indulgence and unwilling to chastise he himself enjoyed the good things of this world and liked to let it be known that he did so he cordially despised any brother rector who thought harm of dinner-parties or dreaded the dangers of a moderate claret-jug consequently dinner-parties and claret-jugs were common in the diocese he liked to give laws and to be obeyed in them implicitly but he endeavoured that his ordinances should be within the compass of the man and not unpalatable to the gentleman he had ruled among his clerical neighbours now for sundry years and as he had maintained his power without becoming unpopular it may be presumed that he had exercised some wisdom of mr slope's conduct much cannot be said as his grand career is yet to commence but it may be premised that his tastes will be very different from those of the archdeacon he conceives it to be his duty to know all the private doings and desires of the flock entrusted to his care from the poorer classes he exacts an unconditional obedience to set rules of conduct and if disobeyed he has recourse like his great ancestor to the fulminations of an analphus thou shalt be damned in thy going in and in thy coming out in thy eating and in thy drinking etc 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 with the rich experience has already taught him that a different line of action is necessary men in the upper walks of life do not mind being cursed and the women presuming that it be done in delicate phrase rather like it but he has not therefore given up so important a portion of believing christians with the men indeed he is generally at variance they are hardened sinners on whom the voice of the priestly charmer too often falls in vain but with the ladies old and young firm and frail devout and dissipated he is as he conceives all-powerful he can reprove faults with so much flattery and utter censure in so caressing a manner that the female heart if it glow with a spark of low church susceptibility cannot withstand him in many houses he is thus an admired guest the husbands for their wives sake 
are fain to admit him and when once admitted it is not easy to shake him off he has however a pawing greasy way with him which does not endear him to those who do not value him for their souls sake and he is not a man to make himself at once popular in a large circle such as is now likely to surround him at barchester end of chapter four recording by nick whitley purley united kingdom chapter five of barchester towers by anthony trollope this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by nick whitley purley united kingdom chapter five a morning visit it was known that dr proudie would immediately have to reappoint to the wardenship of the hospital under the act of parliament to which allusion has been made no one imagined that any choice was left to him no one for a moment thought that he could appoint any other than mr harding mr harding himself when he heard how the matter had been settled without troubling himself much on the subject consider it as certain that he would go back to his pleasant house and garden and though there would be much that was melancholy nay almost heart-rending in such a return he still was glad that it was to be so his daughter might probably be persuaded to return there with him she had indeed all but promised to do so though she still entertained an idea that that greatest of mortals that important atom of humanity that little god upon earth johnny bold her baby ought to have a house of his own over his head such being the state of mr harding's mind in the matter he did not feel any peculiar personal interest in the appointment of dr proudie to the bishopric he as well as others at barchester regretted that a man should be sent among them who they were aware was not of their way of thinking but mr harding himself was not a bigoted man on points of church doctrine and he was quite prepared to welcome dr proudie to barchester in a graceful and becoming manner he had nothing to seek and nothing to fear he felt that it behoved him to be on good terms with his bishop and he did not anticipate any obstacle that would prevent it in such a frame of mind he proceeded to pay his respects at the palace the second day after the arrival of the bishop and his chaplain but he did not go alone dr grantly proposed to accompany him and mr harding was not sorry to have a companion who would remove from his shoulders the burden of the conversation in such an interview in the affair of the consecration dr grantly had been introduced to the bishop and mr harding had also been there he had however kept himself in the background and he was now to be presented to the great man for the first time the archdeacon's feelings were of a much stronger nature he was not exactly the man to overlook his own slighted claims or to forgive the preference shown to another dr proudie was playing venus to his juno and he was prepared to wage an internecine war against the owner of the wished-for apple and all his satellites 
private chaplains and others nevertheless it behoved him also to conduct himself towards the intruder as an old archdeacon should conduct himself to an incoming bishop and though he was well aware of all dr proudie's abominable opinions as regarded dissenters church reform the hebdomadal council and such like though he disliked the man and hated the doctrines still he was prepared to show respect to the station of the bishop so he and mr harding called together at the palace his lordship was at home and the two visitors were shown through the accustomed hall into the well-known room where the good old bishop used to sit the furniture had been bought at a valuation and every chair and table every bookshelf against the wall and every square in the carpet was as well known to each of them as their own bedrooms nevertheless they at once felt that they were strangers there the furniture was for the most part the same yet the place had been metamorphosed a new sofa had been introduced a horrid chintz affair most unprelatical and almost irreligious such a sofa as never yet stood in the study of any decent high church clergyman of the church of england the old curtains had also given way they had to be sure become dingy and that which had been originally a rich and goodly ruby had degenerated into a reddish-brown mr harding however thought the old reddish-brown much preferable to the gaudy buff-coloured trumpery moreen which mrs proudie had deemed good enough for her husband's own room in the provincial city of barchester our friends found dr proudie sitting on the old bishop's chair looking very nice in his new apron they found too mr slope standing on the hearth-rug persuasive and eager just as the archdeacon used to stand but on the sofa they also found mrs proudie an innovation for which a precedent might in vain be sought in all the annals of the barchester bishopric there she was however and they could only make the best of her the introductions were gone through in much form the archdeacon shook hands with the bishop and named mr harding who received such an amount of greeting as was due from a bishop to a precentor his lordship then presented them to his lady wife the archdeacon first with archidiaconal honours and then the precentor with diminished parade after this mr slope presented himself the bishop it is true did mention his name and so did mrs proudie too in a louder tone but mr slope took upon himself the chief burden of his own introduction he had great pleasure in making himself acquainted with dr grantly he had heard much of the archdeacon's good works in that part of the diocese in which his duties as archdeacon had been exercised thus purposely ignoring the archdeacon's hitherto unlimited dominion over the diocese at large 
he was aware that his lordship depended greatly on the assistance which dr grantly would be able to give him in that portion of his diocese he then thrust out his hand and grasping that of his new foe bedewed it unmercifully dr grantly in return bowed looked stiff contracted his eyebrows and wiped his hand with his pocket-handkerchief nothing abashed mr slope then noticed the precentor and descended to the grade of the lower clergy he gave him a squeeze of the hand damp indeed but affectionate and was very glad to make the acquaintance of mr oh yes mr harding he had not exactly caught the name precentor in the cathedral surmised mr slope mr harding confessed that such was the humble sphere of his work some parish duty as well suggested mr slope mr harding acknowledged the diminutive incumbency of st cuthbert's mr slope then left him alone having condescended sufficiently and joined the conversation among the higher powers there were four persons there each of whom considered himself the most important personage in the diocese himself indeed or herself as mrs proudie was one of them and with such a difference of opinion it was not probable that they would get on pleasantly together the bishop himself actually wore the visible apron and trusted mainly to that to that and his title both being facts which could not be overlooked the archdeacon knew his subject and really understood the business of bishoping which the others did not and this was his strong ground mrs proudie had her sex to back her and her habit of command and was nothing daunted by the high tone of dr grantly's face and figure mr slope had only himself and his own courage and tact to depend on but he nevertheless was perfectly self-assured and did not doubt but that he should soon get the better of weak men who trusted so much to externals as both bishop and archdeacon appeared to do do you reside in barchester dr grantly asked the lady with her sweetest smile dr grantly explained that he lived in his own parish of plumstead episcopi a few miles out of the city whereupon the lady hoped that the distance was not too great for country visiting as she would be so glad to make the acquaintance of mrs grantly she would take the earliest opportunity after the arrival of her horses at barchester their horses were at present in london their horses were not immediately coming down as the bishop would be obliged in a few days to return to town dr grantly was no doubt aware that the bishop was at present much called upon by the university improvement committee indeed the committee could not well proceed without him as their final report had now to be drawn up the bishop had also to prepare a scheme for the manufacturing town's morning and evening sunday-school society of which he was a patron or president or director and therefore the horses would not come down to barchester at present but whenever the horses did come down she would take the earliest opportunity of calling at plumstead episcopi providing the distance was not too great for country visiting the archdeacon 
made his fifth bow he had made one at each mention of the horses and promised that mrs grantly would do herself the honour of calling at the palace on an early day mrs proudie declared that she would be delighted she hadn't liked to ask not having been quite sure whether mrs grantly had horses besides the distance might have been etc etc dr grantly again bowed but said nothing he could have bought every individual possession of the whole family of the proudies and have restored them as a gift without much feeling the loss and had kept a separate pair of horses for the exclusive use of his wife since the day of his marriage whereas mrs proudie had been hitherto jobbed about the streets of london at so much a month during the season and at other times had managed to walk or hire a smart fly from the livery stables are the arrangements with reference to the sabbath-day schools generally pretty good in your archdeaconry asked mr slope sabbath-day schools repeated the archdeacon with an affectation of surprise upon my word i can't tell it depends mainly on the parson's wife and daughters there is none at plumstead this was almost a fib on the part of the archdeacon mrs grantly has a very nice school to be sure it is not a sunday school exclusively and is not so designated but that exemplary lady always attends there for an hour before church and hears the children say their catechism and sees that they are clean and tidy for church with their hands washed and their shoes tied and grizzle and florinda her daughters carry thither a basket of large buns baked on the saturday afternoon and distribute them to all the children not especially under disgrace which buns are carried home after church with considerable content and eaten hot at tea being then split and toasted the children of plumstead would indeed open their eyes if they heard their venerated pastor declare that there was no sunday school in his parish mr slope merely opened his wide eyes wider and slightly shrugged his shoulders he was not however prepared to give up his darling project i fear there is a great deal of sabbath travelling here said he on looking at the bradshaw i see that there are three trains in and three out every sabbath could nothing be done to induce the company to withdraw them don't you think dr grantly that a little energy might diminish the evil not being a director i really can't say but if you can withdraw the passengers the company i dare say will withdraw the trains said the doctor it's merely a question of dividends but surely dr grantly said the lady surely we should look at it differently you and i for instance in our position surely we should do all that we can to control so grievous a sin don't you think so mr harding and she turned to the precentor who was sitting mute and unhappy mr harding thought that all porters and stokers guards brakesmen and pointsmen ought to have an opportunity of going to church and he hoped that they all had but surely surely continued mrs proudie surely that is not enough 
surely that will not secure such an observance of the sabbath as we are taught to conceive is not only expedient but indispensable surely come what come might dr grantly was not to be forced into a dissertation on a point of doctrine with mrs proudie nor yet with mr slope so without much ceremony he turned his back upon the sofa and began to hope that dr proudie had found that the palace repairs had been such as to meet his wishes yes yes said his lordship upon the whole he thought so upon the whole he didn't know that there was much ground for complaint the architect perhaps might have but his double mr slope who had sidled over to the bishop's chair would not allow his lordship to finish his ambiguous speech there is one point i should like to mention mr archdeacon his lordship asked me to step through the premises and i see that the stalls in the second stable are not perfect why they're standing there for a dozen horses said the archdeacon perhaps so said the other indeed i've no doubt of it but visitors you know often require so much accommodation there are so many of the bishop's relatives who always bring their own horses dr grantly promised that due provision for the relatives horses should be made as far at least as the extent of the original stable building would allow he would himself communicate with the architect and the coach-house dr grantly continued mr slope there is really hardly room for a second carriage in the large coach-house and the smaller one of course holds only one and the gas chimed in the lady there is no gas throughout the house none whatever but in the kitchen and passages surely the palace should have been fitted through with pipes for gas and hot water too there is no hot water laid on anywhere above the ground floor surely there should be the means of getting hot water in the bedrooms without having it brought in jugs from the kitchen the bishop had a decided opinion that there should be pipes for hot water hot water was very essential for the comfort of the palace it was indeed a requisite in any decent gentleman's house mr slope had remarked that the coping on the garden wall was in many places imperfect mrs proudie had discovered a large hole evidently the work of rats in the servants hall the bishop expressed an utter detestation of rats there was nothing he believed in this world that he so much hated as a rat mr slope had moreover observed that the locks of the outhouses were very imperfect he might specify the coal-cellar and the wood-house mrs proudie had also seen that those on the doors of the servants bedrooms were in an equally bad condition indeed the locks all through the house were old-fashioned and unserviceable the bishop thought that a great deal depended on a good lock and quite as much on the key he had observed that the fault very often lay with the key especially if the wards were in any way twisted mr slope was going on with his catalogue of grievances when he was somewhat loudly interrupted by the archdeacon who succeeded in explaining that the diocesan architect or rather his foreman was the person to be addressed on such subjects and that he dr grantly had inquired as to the comfort of the palace 
merely as a point of compliment he was sorry however that so many things had been found amiss and then he rose from his chair to escape mrs proudie though she had contrived to lend her assistance in recapitulating the palatial dilapidations had not on that account given up her hold of mr harding nor ceased from her cross-examinations as to the iniquity of sabbatical amusements over and over again had she thrown out her surely surely at mr harding's devoted head and ill had that gentleman been able to parry the attack he had never before found himself subjected to such a nuisance ladies hitherto when they had consulted him on religious subjects had listened to what he might choose to say with some deference and had differed if they differed in silence but mrs proudie interrogated him and then lectured neither thou nor thy son nor thy daughter thy manservant nor thy maidservant said she impressively and more than once as though mr harding had forgotten the words she shook her finger at him as she quoted the favourite law as though menacing him with punishment and then called upon him categorically to state whether he did not think that travelling on the sabbath was an abomination and a desecration mr harding had never been so hard pressed in his life he felt that he ought to rebuke the lady for presuming so to talk to a gentleman and a clergyman many years her senior but he recoiled from the idea of scolding the bishop's wife in the bishop's presence on his first visit to the palace moreover to tell the truth he was somewhat afraid of her she seeing him sit silent and absorbed by no means refrained from the attack i hope mr harding said she shaking her head slowly and solemnly i hope you will not leave me to think that you approve of sabbath travelling and she looked a look of unutterable meaning into his eyes there was no standing this for mr slope was now looking at him and so was the bishop and so was the archdeacon who had completed his adieus on that side of the room mr harding therefore got up also and putting out his hand to mrs proudie said if you will come to st cuthbert's some sunday i will preach you a sermon on that subject and so the archdeacon and the precentor took their departure bowing low to the lady shaking hands with the lord and escaping from mr slope in the best manner each could mr harding was again maltreated but dr grantly swore deeply in the bottom of his heart that no earthly consideration should ever again induce him to touch the paw of that impure and filthy animal and now had i the pen of a mighty poet would i sing in epic verse the noble wrath of the archdeacon the palace steps descend to a broad gravel sweep from whence a small gate opens out into the street very near the covered gateway leading into the close the road from the palace door turns to the left through the spacious gardens and terminates on the london road half a mile from the cathedral till they had both passed this small gate and entered the close 
neither of them spoke a word but the precentor clearly saw from his companion's face that a tornado was to be expected nor was he himself inclined to stop it though by nature far less irritable than the archdeacon even he was angry he even that mild and courteous man was inclined to express himself in anything but courteous terms end of chapter five recording by nick whitley purley united kingdom chapter six of barchester towers by anthony trollope this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by nick whitley purley united kingdom chapter six war good heavens exclaimed the archdeacon as he placed his foot on the gravel walk of the close and raising his hat with one hand passed the other somewhat violently over his now grizzled locks smoke issued forth from the uplifted beaver as it were a cloud of wrath and the safety valve of his anger opened and emitted a visible steam preventing positive explosion and probable apoplexy good heavens and the archdeacon looked up to the grey pinnacles of the cathedral tower making a mute appeal to that still living witness which had looked down on the doings of so many bishops of barchester i don't think i shall ever like that mr slope said mr harding like him roared the archdeacon standing still for a moment to give more force to his voice like him all the ravens of the close cawed their assent the old bells of the tower in chiming the hour echoed the words and the swallows flying out from their nests mutely expressed a similar opinion like mr slope why no it was not very probable that any barchester-bred living thing should like mr slope nor mrs proudie either said mr harding the archdeacon hereupon forgot himself i will not follow his example nor shock my readers by transcribing the term in which he expressed his feeling as to the lady who had been named the ravens and the last lingering notes of the clock-bells were less scrupulous and repeated in correspondent echoes the very improper exclamation the archdeacon again raised his hat and another salutary escape of steam was effected there was a pause during which the precentor tried to realise the fact that the wife of a bishop of barchester had been thus designated in the close of the cathedral by the lips of its own archdeacon but he could not do it the bishop seems to be a quiet man enough suggested mr harding having acknowledged to himself his own failure idiot exclaimed the doctor who for the nonce was not capable of more than such spasmodic attempts at utterance well he did not seem very bright 
said mr harding and yet he has always had the reputation of a clever man i suppose he's cautious and not inclined to express himself very freely the new bishop of barchester was already so contemptible a creature in dr grantly's eyes that he could not condescend to discuss his character he was a puppet to be played by others a mere wax doll done up in an apron and a shovel hat to be stuck on a throne or elsewhere and pulled about by wires as others chose dr grantly did not choose to let himself down low enough to talk about dr proudie but he saw that he would have to talk about the other members of his household the coadjutor bishops who had brought his lordship down as it were in a box and were about to handle the wires as they willed this in itself was a terrible vexation to the archdeacon could he have ignored the chaplain and have fought the bishop there would have been at any rate nothing degrading in such a contest let the queen make whom she would bishop of barchester a man or even an ape when once a bishop would be a respectable adversary if he would but fight himself but what was such a person as dr grantly to do when such another person as mr slope was put forward as his antagonist if he our archdeacon refused the combat mr slope would walk triumphant over the field and have the diocese of barchester under his heel if on the other hand the archdeacon accepted as his enemy the man whom the new puppet bishop put before him as such he would have to talk about mr slope and write about mr slope and in all matters treat with mr slope as a being standing in some degree on ground similar to his own he would have to meet mr slope to bah the idea was sickening he could not bring himself to have to do with mr slope he is the most thoroughly bestial creature that ever i set my eyes upon said the archdeacon who the bishop asked the other innocently bishop no i'm not talking about the bishop how on earth such a creature got ordained they'll ordain anybody now i know but he's been in the church these ten years and they used to be a little careful ten years ago oh you mean mr slope did you ever see an animal less like a gentleman asked dr grantly i can't say i felt myself much disposed to like him like him again shouted the doctor and the assenting ravens again cawed an echo of course you don't like him it's not a question of liking but what are we to do with him 
do with him asked mr harding yes what are we to do with him how are we to treat him there he is and there he'll stay he has put his foot in that palace and he'll never take it out again till he's driven how are we to get rid of him i don't suppose he can do us much harm not do harm well i think you'll find yourself of a different opinion before a month is gone what would you say now if he got himself put into the hospital would that be harm mr harding mused a while and then said he didn't think the new bishop would put mr slope into the hospital if he doesn't put him there he'll put him somewhere else where he'll be as bad i tell you that man to all intents and purposes will be bishop of barchester and again dr grantly raised his hat and rubbed his hand thoughtfully and sadly over his head impudent scoundrel he continued after a while to dare to cross-examine me about the sunday schools in the diocese and sunday travelling too i never in my life met his equal for sheer impudence why he must have thought we were two candidates for ordination i declare i thought mrs proudie was the worst of the two said mr harding when a woman is impertinent one must only put up with it and keep out of her way in future but i am not inclined to put up with mr slope sabbath travelling and the doctor attempted to imitate the peculiar drawl of the man he so much disliked those are the sort of men who will ruin the church of england and make the profession of a clergyman disreputable it is not the dissenters or the papists that we should fear but the set of canting low-bred hypocrites who are wriggling their way in among us men who have no fixed principle no standard ideas of religion or doctrine but who take up some popular cry as this fellow has done about sabbath travelling dr grantly did not again repeat the question aloud but he did so constantly to himself what were they to do with mr slope how was he openly before the world to show that he utterly disapproved of and abhorred such a man hitherto barchester had escaped the taint of any extreme rigour of church doctrine the clergymen of the city and neighbourhood though very well inclined to promote high church principles privileges and prerogatives had never committed themselves to tendencies which are somewhat too loosely called puseyite practices 
they all preached in their black gowns as their fathers had done before them they wore ordinary black cloth waistcoats they had no candles on their altars either lighted or unlighted they made no private genuflections and were contented to confine themselves to such ceremonial observances as had been in vogue for the last hundred years the services were decently and demurely read in their parish churches chanting was confined to the cathedral and the science of intoning was unknown one young man who had come direct from oxford as a curate to plumstead had after the lapse of two or three sundays made a faint attempt much to the bewilderment of the poorer part of the congregation dr grantly had not been present on the occasion but mrs grantly who had her own opinion on the subject immediately after the service expressed a hope that the young gentleman had not been taken ill and offered to send him all kinds of condiments supposed to be good for a sore throat after that there had been no more intoning at plumstead episcopi but now the archdeacon began to meditate on some strong measures of absolute opposition dr proudie and his crew were of the lowest possible order of church of england clergymen and therefore it behoved him dr grantly to be of the very highest dr proudie would abolish all forms and ceremonies and therefore dr grantly felt the sudden necessity of multiplying them dr proudie would consent to deprive the church of all collective authority and rule and therefore dr grantly would stand up for the full power of convocation and the renewal of all its ancient privileges it was true that he could not himself intone the service but he could procure the cooperation of any number of gentlemen-like curates well trained in the mystery of doing so he would not willingly alter his own fashion of dress but he could people barchester with young clergymen dressed in the longest frocks and in the highest-breasted silk waistcoats he certainly was not prepared to cross himself or to advocate the real presence but without going this length there were various observances by adopting which he could plainly show his antipathy to such men as dr proudie and mr slope all these things passed through his mind as he paced up and down the close with mr harding war war internecine war was in his heart he felt that as regarded himself and mr slope one of the two must be annihilated as far as the city of barchester was concerned and he did not intend to give way until there was not left to him an inch of ground on which he could stand he still flattered himself that he could make barchester too hot to hold mr slope and he had no weakness of spirit to prevent his bringing about such a consummation 
if it were in his power i suppose susan must call at the palace said mr harding yes she shall call there but it shall be once and once only i dare say the horses won't find it convenient to come out to plumstead very soon and when that once is done the matter may drop i don't suppose eleanor need call i don't think eleanor would get on at all well with mrs proudie not the least necessity in life replied the archdeacon not without the reflection that a ceremony which was necessary for his wife might not be at all binding on the widow of john bold not the slightest reason on earth why she should do so if she doesn't like it for myself i don't think that any decent young woman should be subjected to the nuisance of being in the same room with that man and so the two clergymen parted mr harding going to his daughter's house and the archdeacon seeking the seclusion of his brougham the new inhabitants of the palace did not express any higher opinion of their visitors than their visitors had expressed of them though they did not use quite such strong language as dr grantly had done they felt as much personal aversion and were quite as well aware as he was that there would be a battle to be fought that there was hardly room for proudyism in barchester as long as grantlyism was predominant indeed it may be doubted whether mr slope had not already within his breast a better prepared system of strategy a more accurately defined line of hostile conduct than the archdeacon dr grantly was going to fight because he found that he hated the man mr slope had predetermined to hate the man because he foresaw the necessity of fighting him when he had first reviewed the carte du pays previous to his entry into barchester the idea had occurred to him of conciliating the archdeacon of cajoling and flattering him into submission and of obtaining the upper hand by cunning instead of courage a little inquiry however sufficed to convince him that all his cunning would fail to win over such a man as dr grantly to such a mode of action as that to be adopted by mr slope and then he determined to fall back upon his courage he at once saw that open battle against dr grantly and all dr grantly's adherents was a necessity of his position and he deliberately planned the most expedient methods of giving offence soon after his arrival the bishop had intimated to the dean that with the permission of the canon then in residence his chaplain would preach in the cathedral on the next sunday the canon in residence happened to be the hon and rev dr vesey stanhope who at this time was very busy on the shores of the lake of como adding to that unique collection of butterflies for which he is so famous or rather he would have been in residence but for the butterflies and other such summer-day considerations and the vicar choral who was to take his place in the pulpit 
by no means objected to having his work done for him by mr slope mr slope accordingly preached and if a preacher can have satisfaction in being listened to mr slope ought to have been gratified i have reason to think that he was gratified and that he left the pulpit with the conviction that he had done what he intended to do when he entered it on this occasion the new bishop took his seat for the first time in the throne allotted to him new scarlet cushions and drapery had been prepared with new gilt binding and new fringe the old carved oak wood of the throne ascending with its numerous grotesque pinnacles half-way up to the roof of the choir had been washed and dusted and rubbed and it all looked very smart ah how often sitting there in happy early days on those lowly benches in front of the altar have i whiled away the tedium of a sermon in considering how best i might thread my way up amidst those wooden towers and climb safely to the topmost pinnacle all barchester went to hear mr slope either for that or to gaze at the new bishop all the best bonnets of the city were there and moreover all the best glossy clerical hats not a stall but had its fitting occupant for though some of the prebendaries might be away in italy or elsewhere their places were filled by brethren who flocked into barchester on the occasion the dean was there a heavy old man now too old indeed to attend frequently in his place and so was the archdeacon so also were the chancellor the treasurer the precentor sundry canons and minor canons and every lay member of the choir prepared to sing the new bishop in with due melody and harmonious expression of sacred welcome the service was certainly very well performed such was always the case at barchester as the musical education of the choir had been good and the voices had been carefully selected the psalms were beautifully chanted the te deum was magnificently sung and the litany was given in a manner which is still to be found at barchester but if my taste be correct is to be found nowhere else the litany in barchester cathedral has long been the special task to which mr harding's skill and voice have been devoted crowded audiences generally make good performers and though mr harding was not aware of any extraordinary exertion on his part yet probably he rather exceeded his usual mark others were doing their best and it was natural that he should emulate his brethren so the service went on and at last mr slope got into the pulpit he chose for his text a verse from the precepts addressed by st paul to timothy as to the conduct necessary in a spiritual pastor and guide and it was immediately evident that the good clergy of barchester were to have a lesson study to show thyself approved unto god a workman that needeth not to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth these were the words of his text 
and with such a subject in such a place it may be supposed that such a preacher would be listened to by such an audience he was listened to with breathless attention and not without considerable surprise whatever opinion of mr slope might have been held in barchester before he commenced his discourse none of his hearers when it was over could mistake him either for a fool or a coward it would not be becoming were i to travesty a sermon or even to repeat the language of it in the pages of a novel in endeavouring to depict the characters of the persons of whom i write i am to a certain extent forced to speak of sacred things i trust however that i shall not be thought to scoff at the pulpit though some may imagine that i do not feel all the reverence that is due to the cloth i may question the infallibility of the teachers but i hope that i shall not therefore be accused of doubt as to the thing to be taught mr slope in commencing his sermon showed no slight tact in his ambiguous manner of hinting that humble as he was himself he stood there as the mouthpiece of the illustrious divine who sat opposite to him and having premised so much he gave forth a very accurate definition of the conduct which that prelate would rejoice to see in the clergyman now brought under his jurisdiction it is only necessary to say that the peculiar points insisted upon were exactly those which were most distasteful to the clergy of the diocese and most averse to their practice and opinions and that all those peculiar habits and privileges which have always been dear to high church priests to that party which is now scandalously called the high and dry church were ridiculed abused and anathematized now the clergymen of the diocese of barchester are all of the high and dry church having thus according to his own opinion explained how a clergyman shall show himself approved unto god as a workman that needeth not to be ashamed he went on to explain how the word of truth should be divided and here he took a rather narrow view of the question and fetched his arguments from afar his object was to express his abomination of all ceremonious modes of utterance to cry down any religious feeling which might be excited not by the sense but by the sound of words and in fact to insult cathedral practices had st paul spoken of rightly pronouncing instead of rightly dividing the word of truth this part of his sermon would have been more to the purpose but the preacher's immediate object was to preach mr slope's doctrine and not st paul's and he contrived to give the necessary twist to the text with some skill he could not exactly say preaching from a cathedral pulpit that chanting should be abandoned in cathedral services by such an assertion he would have overshot his mark and rendered himself absurd to the delight of his hearers he could however 
and did allude with heavy denunciations to the practice of intoning in parish churches although the practice was all but unknown in the diocese and from thence he came round to the undue preponderance which he asserted music had over meaning in the beautiful service which they had just heard he was aware he said that the practices of our ancestors could not be abandoned at a moment's notice the feelings of the aged would be outraged and the minds of respectable men would be shocked there were many he was aware of not sufficient calibre of thought to perceive of not sufficient education to know that a mode of service which was effective when outward ceremonies were of more moment than inward feelings had become all but barbarous at a time when inward conviction was everything when each word of the minister's lips should fall intelligibly into the listener's heart formerly the religion of the multitude had been an affair of the imagination now in these latter days it had become necessary that a christian should have a reason for his faith should not only believe but digest not only hear but understand the words of our morning service how beautiful how apposite how intelligible they were when read with simple and distinct decorum but how much of the meaning of the words was lost when they were produced with all the meretricious charms of melody etc etc here was a sermon to be preached before mr archdeacon grantly mr precentor harding and the rest of them before a whole dean and chapter assembled in their own cathedral before men who had grown old in the exercise of their peculiar services with a full conviction of their excellence for all intended purposes this too from such a man a clerical parvenu a man without a cure a mere chaplain an intruder among them a fellow raked up so said dr grantly from the gutters of marylebone they had to sit through it none of them not even dr grantly could close his ears nor leave the house of god during the hours of service they were under an obligation of listening and that too without any immediate power of reply there is perhaps no greater hardship at present inflicted on mankind in civilized and free countries than the necessity of listening to sermons no one but a preaching clergyman has in these realms the power of compelling an audience to sit silent and be tormented no one but a preaching clergyman can revel in platitudes truisms and untruisms and yet receive as his undisputed privilege 
the same respectful demeanour as though words of impassioned eloquence or persuasive logic fell from his lips let a professor of law or physics find his place in a lecture-room and there pour forth jejune words and useless empty phrases and he will pour them forth to empty benches let a barrister attempt to talk without talking well and he will talk but seldom a judge's charge need to be listened to perforce by none but the jury prisoner and jailer a member of parliament can be coughed down or counted out town councillors can be tabooed but no one can rid himself of the preaching clergyman he is the bore of the age the old man whom we sinbads cannot shake off the nightmare that disturbs our sunday's rest the incubus that overloads our religion and makes god's service distasteful we are not forced into church no but we desire more than that we desire not to be forced to stay away we desire nay we are resolute to enjoy the comfort of public worship but we desire also that we may do so without an amount of tedium which ordinary human nature cannot endure with patience that we may be able to leave the house of god without that anxious longing for escape which is the common consequence of common sermons with what complacency will a young parson deduce false conclusions from misunderstood texts and then threaten us with all the penalties of hades if we neglect to comply with the injunctions he has given us yes my too self-confident juvenile friend i do believe in those mysteries which are so common in your mouth i do believe in the unadulterated word which you hold there in your hand but you must pardon me if in some things i doubt your interpretation the bible is good the prayer-book is good nay you yourself would be acceptable if you would read to me some portion of those time-honoured discourses which our great divines have elaborated in the full maturity of their powers but you must excuse me my insufficient young lecturer if i yawn over your imperfect sentences your repeated phrases your false pathos your drawlings and denouncings your humming and hawing your owing and ahing your black gloves and your white handkerchief to me it all means nothing and ours are too precious to be so wasted if one could only avoid it and here i must make a protest against the pretence so often put forward by the working clergy that they are overburdened by the multitude of sermons to be preached we are all too fond of our own voices and a preacher is encouraged in the vanity of making his heard by the privilege of a compelled audience his sermon is the pleasant morsel of his life his delicious moment of self-exaltation i have preached nine sermons this week said a young friend to me the other day with hand languidly raised to his brow the picture of an overburdened martyr nine this week seven last week four the week before 
i have preached twenty-three sermons this month it is really too much too much indeed said i shuddering too much for the strength of any one yes he answered meekly indeed it is i am beginning to feel it painfully would said i you could feel it would that you could be made to feel it but he never guessed that my heart was wrung for the poor listeners there was at any rate no tedium felt in listening to mr slope on the occasion in question his subject came too home to his audience to be dull and to tell the truth mr slope had the gift of using words forcibly he was heard through his thirty minutes of eloquence with mute attention and open ears but with angry eyes which glared round from one enraged parson to another with wide-spread nostrils from which already burst forth fumes of indignation and with many shufflings of the feet and uneasy motions of the body which betokened minds disturbed and hearts not at peace with all the world at last the bishop who of all the congregation had been most surprised and whose hair almost stood on end with terror gave the blessing in a manner not at all equal to that in which he had long been practising it in his own study and the congregation was free to go their way End of chapter 6 Recording by Nick Whitley, Purley, United Kingdom Chapter 7 of Barchester Towers by Anthony Trollope This LibriVox recording is in the public domain Recording by Nick Whitley, Purley, United Kingdom Chapter 7 the dean and chapter take counsel all barchester was in a tumult dr grantly could hardly get himself out of the cathedral porch before he exploded in his wrath the old dean betook himself silently to his deanery afraid to speak and there sat half stupefied pondering many things in vain mr harding crept forth solitary and unhappy and slowly passing beneath the elms of the close could scarcely bring himself to believe that the words which he had heard had proceeded from the pulpit of barchester cathedral was he again to be disturbed was his whole life to be shown up as a useless sham a second time would he have to abdicate his precentorship as he had his wardenship and to give up chanting as he had given up his twelve old beadsmen and what if he did some other jupiter some other mr slope would come and turn him out of st cuthbert's surely he could not have been wrong all his life enchanting the litany as he had done he began however to have his doubts doubting himself was mr harding's weakness it is not however the usual fault of his order yes all barchester was in a tumult it was not only the clergy who were affected 
the laity also had listened to mr slope's new doctrine all with surprise some with indignation and some with a mixed feeling in which dislike of the preacher was not so strongly blended the old bishop and his chaplains the dean and his canons and minor canons the old choir and especially mr harding who was at the head of it had all been popular in barchester they had spent their money and done good the poor had not been ground down the clergy and society had neither been overbearing nor austere and the whole repute of the city was due to its ecclesiastical importance yet there were those who had heard mr slope with satisfaction it is so pleasant to receive a fillip of excitement when suffering from the dull routine of everyday life the anthems and tediums were in themselves delightful but they had been heard so often mr slope was certainly not delightful but he was new and moreover clever they had long thought it slow so said now many of the barchesterians to go on as they had done in their old humdrum way giving ear to none of the religious changes which were moving the world without people in advance of the age now had new ideas and it was quite time that barchester should go in advance mr slope might be right sunday had certainly not been strictly kept in barchester except as regarded the cathedral services indeed the two hours between services had long been appropriated to morning calls and hot luncheons then sunday schools really more ought to have been done as to sunday schools sabbath day schools mr slope had called them the late bishop had really not thought of sunday schools as he should have done these people probably did not reflect that catechisms and collects are quite as hard work to the young mind as book-keeping is to the elderly and that quite as little feeling of worship enters into the one task as the other and then as regarded that great question of musical services there might be much to be said on mr slope's side of the question it certainly was the fact that people went to the cathedral to hear the music etc etc and so a party absolutely formed itself in barchester on mr slope's side of the question this consisted among the upper classes chiefly of ladies no man that is no gentleman could possibly be attracted by mr slope or consent to sit at the feet of so abhorrent a gamaliel ladies are sometimes less nice in their appreciation of physical disqualification provided that a man speak to them well they will listen though he speak from a mouth never so deformed and hideous wilkes was most fortunate as a lover and the damp sandy-haired saucer-eyed red-fisted mr slope was powerful only over the female breast there were however one or two of the neighbouring clergy who thought it not quite safe to neglect the baskets in which 
for the nonce were stored the loaves and fishes of the diocese of barchester they and they only came to call on mr slope after his performance in the cathedral pulpit among these mr quiverful the rector of puddingdale whose wife still continued to present him from year to year with fresh pledges of her love and so to increase his cares and it is to be hoped his happiness equally who can wonder that a gentleman with fourteen living children and a bare income of four hundred pounds a year should look after the loaves and fishes even when they are under the thumb of a mr slope very soon after the sunday on which the sermon was preached the leading clergy of the neighbourhood held high debate together as to how mr slope should be put down in the first place he should never again preach from the pulpit of barchester cathedral this was dr grantly's earliest dictum and they all agreed providing only that they had the power to exclude him dr grantly declared that the power rested with the dean and chapter observing that no clergyman out of the chapter had a claim to preach there saving only the bishop himself to this the dean assented but alleged that contests on such a subject would be unseemly to which rejoined a meagre little doctor one of the cathedral prebendaries that the contest must be all on the side of mr slope if every prebendary were always there ready to take his own place in the pulpit cunning little meagre doctor whom it suits well to live in his own cosy house within barchester close and who is well content to have his little fling at dr vesey stanhope and other absentees whose italian villas or enticing london homes are more tempting than cathedral stalls and residences to this answered the burly chancellor a man rather silent indeed but very sensible that absent prebendaries had their vicars and that in such case the vicar's right to the pulpit was the same as that of the higher order to which the dean assented groaning deeply at these truths thereupon however the meagre doctor remarked that they would be in the hands of their minor canons one of whom might at any hour betray his trust whereon was heard from the burly chancellor an ejaculation sounding somewhat like but it might be that the worthy man was but blowing out the heavy breath from his windpipe why silence him at all suggested mr harding let them not be ashamed to hear what any man might have to preach to them unless he preached false doctrine in which case let the bishop silence him so spoke our friend vainly for human ends must be attained by human means but the dean saw a ray of hope out of those purblind old eyes of his yes let them tell the bishop how distasteful to them was this mr slope a new bishop just come to his seat could not wish to insult his clergy while the gloss was yet fresh on his first apron 
then up rose dr grantly and having thus collected the scattered wisdom of his associates spoke forth with words of deep authority when i say up rose the archdeacon i speak of the inner man which then sprang up to more immediate action for the doctor had bodily been standing all along with his back to the dean's empty fire-grate and the tails of his frock-coat supported over his two arms his hands were in his breeches pockets it is quite clear that this man must not be allowed to preach again in this cathedral we all see that except our dear friend here the milk of whose nature runs so softly that he would not have the heart to refuse the pope the loan of his pulpit if the pope would come and ask it we must not however allow the man to preach again here it is not because his opinion on church matters may be different from ours with that one would not quarrel it is because he has purposely insulted us when he went up into that pulpit last sunday his studied object was to give offence to men who had grown old in reverence of those things of which he dared to speak so slightingly what to come here a stranger a young unknown and unfriended stranger and tell us in the name of the bishop his master that we are ignorant of our duties old-fashioned and useless i don't know whether most to admire his courage or his impudence and one thing i will tell you that sermon originated solely with the man himself the bishop was no more a party to it than was the dean here you all know how grieved i am to see a bishop in this diocese holding the latitudinarian ideas by which dr proudie has made himself conspicuous you all know how greatly i should distrust the opinion of such a man but in this matter i hold him to be blameless i believe dr proudie has lived too long among gentlemen to be guilty or to instigate another to be guilty of so gross an outrage no that man uttered what was untrue when he hinted that he was speaking as the mouthpiece of the bishop it suited his ambitious views at once to throw down the gauntlet to us at once to defy us here in the quiet of our own religious duties here within the walls of our own loved cathedral here where we have for so many years exercised our ministry without schism and with good repute such an attack upon us coming from such a quarter is abominable abominable groaned the dean abominable muttered the meagre doctor abominable re-echoed the chancellor uttering the sound from the bottom of his deep chest i really think it was said mr harding 
most abominable and most unjustifiable continued the archdeacon but mr dean thank god that pulpit is still our own your own i should say that pulpit belongs solely to the dean and chapter of barchester cathedral and as yet mr slope is no part of that chapter you mr dean have suggested that we should appeal to the bishop to abstain from forcing this man on us but what if the bishop allow himself to be ruled by his chaplain in my opinion the matter is in our own hands mr slope cannot preach there without permission asked and obtained and let that permission be invariably refused let all participation in the ministry of the cathedral service be refused to him then if the bishop choose to interfere we shall know what answer to make to the bishop my friend here has suggested that this man may again find his way into the pulpit by undertaking the duty of some of your minor canons but i am sure that we may fully trust to these gentlemen to support us when it is known that the dean objects to any such transfer of course you may said the chancellor there was much more discussion among the learned conclave all of which of course ended in obedience to the archdeacon's commands they had too long been accustomed to his rule to shake it off so soon and in this particular case they had none of them a wish to abet the man whom he was so anxious to put down such a meeting as that we have just recorded is not held in such a city as barchester unknown and untold of not only was the fact of the meeting talked of in every respectable house including the palace but the very speeches of the dean the archdeacon and chancellor were repeated not without many additions and imaginary circumstances according to the tastes and opinions of the relators all however agreed in saying that mr slope was to be debarred from opening his mouth in the cathedral of barchester many believed that the vergers were to be ordered to refuse him even the accommodation of a seat and some of the most far-going advocates for strong measures declared that his sermon was looked upon as an indictable offence and that proceedings were to be taken against him for brawling the party who were inclined to defend him the enthusiastically religious young ladies and the middle-aged spinsters desirous of a move of course took up his defence the more warmly on account of this attack if they could not hear mr slope in the cathedral they would hear him elsewhere they would leave the dull dean the dull old prebendaries and the scarcely less dull young minor canons to preach to each other they would work slippers and cushions and hem bands for mr slope make him a happy martyr and stick him up in some new scion or bethesda and put the cathedral quite out of fashion dr and mrs proudie at once returned to london they thought it expedient not to have to encounter any personal application from the dean and chapter respecting the sermon till the violence of the storm had expended itself 
but they left mr slope behind them nothing daunted and he went about his work zealously flattering such as would listen to his flattery whispering religious twaddle into the ears of foolish women ingratiating himself with the few clergy who would receive him visiting the houses of the poor inquiring into all people prying into everything and searching with his minutest eye into all palatial dilapidations he did not however make any immediate attempt to preach again in the cathedral and so all barchester was by the ears end of chapter seven recording by nick whitley purley united kingdom chapter eight of barchester towers by anthony trollope this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by nick whitley purley united kingdom chapter eight the ex-warden rejoices in his probable return to the hospital among the ladies in barchester who have hitherto acknowledged mr slope as their spiritual director must not be reckoned either the widow bold or her sister-in-law on the first outbreak of the wrath of the denizens of the close none had been more animated against the intruder than these two ladies and this was natural who could be so proud of the musical distinction of their own cathedral as the favourite daughter of the precentor who would be so likely to resent an insult offered to the old choir and in such matters miss bold and her sister-in-law had but one opinion this wrath however has in some degree been mitigated and i regret to say that these ladies allowed mr slope to be his own apologist about a fortnight after the sermon had been preached they were both of them not a little surprised by hearing mr slope announced as the page in buttons opened mrs bold's drawing-room door indeed what living man could by a mere morning visit have surprised them more here was the great enemy of all that was good in barchester coming into their own drawing-room and they had no strong arm no ready tongue near at hand for their protection the widow snatched her baby out of its cradle into her lap and mary bold stood up ready to die manfully in that baby's behalf should under any circumstances such a sacrifice become necessary in this manner was mr slope received but when he left he was allowed by each lady to take her hand and to make his adieu as gentlemen do who have been graciously entertained yes he shook hands with them and was curtsied out courteously the buttoned page opening the door as he would have done for the best canon of them all he had touched the baby's little hand and blessed him with a fervid blessing he had spoken to the widow of her early sorrows and eleanor's silent tears had not rebuked him he had told mary bold that her devotion would be rewarded and mary bold had heard the praise without disgust and how had he done all this how had he so quickly turned aversion into at any rate acquaintance how had he overcome the enmity with which these ladies had been ready to receive him and made his peace with them so easily 
my readers will guess from what i have written that i myself do not like mr slope but i am constrained to admit that he is a man of parts he knows how to say a soft word in the proper place he knows how to adapt his flattery to the ears of his hearers he knows the wiles of the serpent and he uses them could mr slope have adapted his manners to men as well as to women could he ever have learnt the ways of a gentleman he might have risen to great things he commenced his acquaintance with eleanor by praising her father he had he said become aware that he had unfortunately offended the feelings of a man of whom he could not speak too highly he would not now allude to a subject which was probably too serious for drawing-room conversation but he would say that it had been very far from him to utter a word in disparagement of a man of whom all the world at least the clerical world spoke so highly as it did of mr harding and so he went on unsaying a great deal of his sermon expressing his highest admiration for the presenter's musical talents eulogising the father and the daughter and the sister-in-law speaking in that low silky whisper which he always had specially prepared for feminine ears and ultimately gaining his object when he left he expressed a hope that he might again be allowed to call and though eleanor gave no verbal assent to this she did not express dissent and so mr slope's right to visit at the widow's house was established the day after this visit eleanor told her father of it and expressed an opinion that mr slope was not quite so black as he had been painted mr harding opened his eyes rather wider than usual when he heard what had occurred but he said little he could not agree in any praise of mr slope and it was not his practice to say much evil of any one he did not however like the visit and simple-minded as he was he felt sure that mr slope had some deeper motive than the mere pleasure of making soft speeches to two ladies mr harding however had come to see his daughter with other purpose than that of speaking either good or evil of mr slope he had come to tell her that the place of warden in hiram's hospital was again to be filled up and that in all probability he would once more return to his old home and his twelve beadsmen but said he laughing i shall be greatly shorn of my ancient glory why so papa this new act of parliament that is to put us all on our feet again continued he settles my income at four hundred and fifty pounds per annum four hundred and fifty said she instead of eight hundred well that is rather shabby but still papa you'll have the dear old house and the garden my dear said he it's worth 
twice the money and as he spoke he showed a jaunty kind of satisfaction in his tone and manner and in the quick pleasant way in which he paced eleanor's drawing-room it's worth twice the money i shall have the house and the garden and a larger income than i can possibly want at any rate you'll have no extravagant daughter to provide for and as she spoke the young widow put her arm within his and made him sit on the sofa beside her at any rate you'll not have that expense no my dear and i shall be rather lonely without her but we won't think of that now as regards income i shall have plenty for all i want i shall have my old house and i don't mind owning now that i have felt sometimes the inconvenience of living in a lodging lodgings are very nice for young men but at my time of life there is a want of i hardly know what to call it perhaps not respectability oh papa i'm sure there's been nothing like that nobody has thought it nobody in all barchester has been more respected than you have been since you took those rooms in high street nobody not the dean in his deanery or the archdeacon out at plumstead the archdeacon would not be much obliged to you if he heard you said he smiling somewhat at the exclusive manner in which his daughter confined her illustration to the church dignitaries of the chapter of barchester but at any rate i shall be glad to get back to the old house since i heard that it was all settled i have begun to fancy that i can't be comfortable without my two sitting-rooms come and stay with me papa till it is settled there's a dear papa thank ye nelly but no i won't do that it would make two movings i shall be very glad to get back to my old men again alas alas there have six of them gone in these few last years six out of twelve and the others i fear have had but a sorry life of it there poor bunce poor old bunce bunce was one of the surviving recipients of hiram's charity an old man now over ninety who had long been a favourite of mr harding's how happy old bunce will be said mrs bold clapping her soft hands softly how happy they all will be to have you back again you may be sure there will soon be friendship among them again when you are there but said he half laughing i am to have new troubles which will be terrible to me there are to be twelve old women and a matron how shall i manage twelve women and a matron the matron will manage the women of course and who'll manage the matron said he she won't want to be managed she'll be a great lady herself i suppose but papa where will the matron live she is not to live in the warden's house with you is she well i hope not my dear oh papa i tell you fairly i won't have a matron for a new stepmother you shan't my dear that is if i can help it but they are going to build another house for the matron and the women 
and i believe they haven't even fixed yet on the site of the building and have they appointed the matron said eleanor they haven't appointed the warden yet replied he but there's no doubt about that i suppose said his daughter mr harding explained that he thought there was no doubt that the archdeacon had declared as much saying that the bishop and his chaplain between them had not the power to appoint any one else even if they had the will to do so and sufficient impudence to carry out such a will the archdeacon was of opinion that though mr harding had resigned his wardenship and had done so unconditionally he had done so under circumstances which left the bishop no choice as to his reappointment now that the affair of the hospital had been settled on a new basis by act of parliament such was the archdeacon's opinion and his father-in-law received it without a shadow of doubt dr grantly had always been strongly opposed to mr harding's resignation of the place he had done all in his power to dissuade him from it he had considered that mr harding was bound to withstand the popular clamour with which he was attacked for receiving so large an income as eight hundred a year from such a charity and was not even yet satisfied that his father-in-law's conduct had not been pusillanimous and undignified he looked also on this reduction of the warden's income as a shabby paltry scheme on the part of government for escaping from a difficulty into which it had been brought by the public press dr grantly observed that the government had no more right to dispose of a sum of four hundred and fifty pounds a year out of the income of hiram's legacy than of nine hundred whereas as he said the bishop dean and chapter clearly had a right to settle what sum should be paid he also declared that the government had no more right to saddle the charity with twelve old women than with twelve hundred and he was therefore very indignant on the matter he probably forgot when so talking that government had done nothing of the kind and had never assumed any such might or any such right he made the common mistake of attributing to the government which in such matters is powerless the doings of parliament which in such matters is omnipotent but though he felt that the glory and honour of the situation of warden of barchester hospital were indeed curtailed by the new arrangement that the whole establishment had to a certain degree been made vile by the touch of whig commissioners that the place with its lessened income its old women and other innovations was very different from the hospital of former days still the archdeacon was too practical a man of the world to wish that his father-in-law who had at present little more than two hundred pounds per annum for all his wants should refuse the situation defiled undignified and commission-ridden as it was 
mr harding had accordingly made up his mind that he would return to his old home at the hospital and to tell the truth had experienced almost a childish pleasure in the idea of doing so the diminished income was to him not even the source of momentary regret the matron and the old women did rather go against the grain but he was able to console himself with the reflection that after all such an arrangement might be of real service to the poor of the city the thought that he must receive his reappointment as the gift of the new bishop and probably through the hands of mr slope annoyed him a little but his mind was set at rest by the assurance of the archdeacon that there would be no favour in such a presentation the reappointment of the old warden would be regarded by all the world as a matter of course mr harding therefore felt no hesitation in telling his daughter that they might look upon his return to his old quarters as a settled matter and you won't have to ask for it papa certainly not my dear there is no ground on which i could ask for any favour from the bishop whom indeed i hardly know nor would i ask a favour the granting of which might possibly be made a question to be settled by mr slope no said he moved for a moment by a spirit very unlike his own i certainly shall be very glad to go back to the hospital but i should never go there if it were necessary that my doing so should be the subject of a request to mr slope this little outbreak of her father's anger jarred on the present tone of eleanor's mind she had not learnt to like mr slope but she had learnt to think that he had much respect for her father and she would therefore willingly use her efforts to induce something like good feeling between them papa said she i think you somewhat mistake mr slope's character do i said he placidly i think you do papa i think he intended no personal disrespect to you when he preached the sermon which made the archdeacon and the dean so angry i never supposed he did my dear i hope i never inquired within myself whether he did or no such a matter would be unworthy of any inquiry and very unworthy of the consideration of the chapter but i fear he intended disrespect to the ministration of god's services as conducted in conformity with the rules of the church of england but might it not be that he thought it his duty to express his dissent from that which you and the dean and all of us here so much approve it can hardly be the duty of a young man rudely to assail the religious convictions of his elders in the church courtesy should have kept him silent even if neither charity nor modesty could do so but mr slope would say that on such a subject the commands of his heavenly master do not admit of his being silent nor of his being courteous eleanor he did not say that papa believe me my child 
that christian ministers are never called on by god's word to insult the convictions or even the prejudices of their brethren and that religion is at any rate not less susceptible of a bane and courteous conduct among men than any other study which men may take up i am sorry to say that i cannot defend mr slope's sermon in the cathedral but come my dear put on your bonnet and let us walk round the dear old gardens at the hospital i have never yet had the heart to go beyond the courtyard since we left the place now i think i can venture to enter eleanor rang the bell and gave a variety of imperative charges as to the welfare of the precious baby whom all but unwillingly she was about to leave for an hour or so and then sauntered forth with her father to revisit the old hospital it had been forbidden ground to her as well as to him since the day on which they had walked forth together from its walls end of chapter eight recording by nick whitley burley united kingdom everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.